I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you know, we are continuing our series looking at the vision of our church. And every week we're taking a different biblical text that unfolds one of the values of our vision. And as you know, we can summarize that vision simply as saying that our vision for our church is to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, we believe, not just here, but indeed throughout the whole of the world. Now, I know that I've been saying every week that little summary of the gospel, and perhaps we hear it and don't really pay attention. I want to take just a brief moment today. I had a wonderful discussion this week with some of you all about some of the things that we see in these four things that I talk about. And I want to say something about them. This idea that the gospel brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal. Why those four things? And the reason that's so important for us to recognize that the gospel does that is because the world is busy trying to do all four of those things as well. The world is behind attempts to personally transform you, to lure you. It's always the devil who is work at work trying to lure you with all sorts of temptations to make you into a person other than what God would have you to be. It is the gospel alone, though, that can really transform you in Jesus Christ to, fe- to leave behind that old way of living. The world is constantly trying to form community as well. It's constantly trying to tell us to whom we can belong and what groups we should be in. Right now, the world is telling us that you are defined by your ethnicity and by your race and by your socioeconomic status, and it's trying to divide us. But we in the church have to remind people that it is through the gospel, through Christ, that true community is formed, that the only thing that matters is whether you are a follower of Christ or not. And that once you follow Christ, all those other distinctions of race, sex, and socioeconomic status all fall away. The world is busily engaged in social justice, saying we're going to fix the problems of the world, but we're going to do it without God, and we're going to do it in ways, for example, you all know the things that are going on, things like critical race theory, or hey, we're going to take your money and we're going to give it to somebody else, and we're going to try to fix things. No, the church has to lead the way with biblical social justice, and to show that as God showed us grace, so now we show grace to others. And in the same way, the culture is heavily involved or I should say the world is heavily involved in trying to do cultural renewal. We would call it cultural reversal, but in their mind, it's a renewal, putting the world the way they want it, whereas we have to be front and center, saying that it is only the gospel that can transform this culture and return it to the way that God had meant it for it to be. You see, the thing that we always see is that the devil always attempts to counterfeit what Jesus is doing. You ever read B.B. Warfield's little book, Counterfeit Miracles? That's one small area in which we always see the devil trying to do the same things that God is doing. And so these four areas that we talk about every Sunday in our vision, personal transformation, community formation, social justice, cultural renewal, these are the things that Jesus is at work doing through the gospel, through the good news. We have to keep them up front. So I want to just mention that so that we don't just read it every uh, or hear it every Sunday. And, you know, we want to really understand why are we focusing on these things? We, the church, have to lead the way. And I think altogether too often the church has either ignored these areas or has ended up playing catch-up after the world has defined what it wants and its agenda. And then we have to try to work backwards 
we should be the ones right up front saying this is the way the things ought to be done through Jesus and through the gospel. And so it's along those lines that the last several weeks we've been focusing now on cultural renewal. We're at the very end of our series now, right? And what we've seen over the last few weeks is that as followers of Christ, we are called to understand our culture. We're called to engage, not withdraw from our culture, and we are called to shape that culture. And today, I want to focus on a very prominent aspect of our culture, and that is the, the uh, idea of wealth, focusing on our money, on wealth. Uh, whatever you might think of it, one thing we know, people work for wealth, they hoard it, they steal it, steal for it, some will even kill for it. But whatever your attitude might be towards wealth and whatever you might do to get it or not get it, one thing we can never do is disregard wealth because it's all around us. It's all-encompassing. It forms the basis of our economy. Every relationship is greatly affected by wealth. And entire lives have been consumed, entire lives have been devoted to the acquisition of wealth or, in some cases, to sloughing off wealth. So what is our attitude to wealth? The bottom line is that all of us, all of us possess wealth to some extent or another. So we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what should be our attitude towards wealth? And that's what we're going to be looking at here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 11, 1 Timothy 6 through 11, and then I'm going to have us jump down and read just these few little verses in 17 through 19. So let's start in verse 6. Hear now the word of God. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then if you'll jump down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it is preached to us this morning. People of God, let me just ask you this question. Is money inherently evil? Should we, as the followers of Jesus, reject wealth because it's a bad thing and instead take up vows of poverty? What's interesting is that in every age of uh, history, there have been some Christians or some followers of God who have thought that this is actually what we should be doing. But if we take a look at verse 10, we can begin to see and get a handle on what our attitude should be. There the apostle says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's very important that we see what Paul is actually saying because I have heard this ever since I was a kid. I would hear people say money 
is the or uh, money itself, not the love of money, but money is the root of all evil. And that's a distortion, a significant distortion of what the text says. And perhaps you've heard that being said as well. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money. And it's not even the love of money that is the root of all evil, the love of money which is at the root of all different types of evils. And so Paul points out that the problem is not money itself. He goes on to say in the second half of verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the problem is not money, but it's this craving, it's this lust, it's this hunger and this pursuit of money that is the problem in our lives. So if money itself then is not inherently evil, what is the proper relationship between our money and our faith? That's an important question for us to answer as followers of Christ living in this world. So as we look at this text, I want us to see three things. We're first going to see our wealth and true godliness. Second, our wealth and true Christian faith. And lastly, our wealth and true Christian fellowship. So our wealth and true godliness, our wealth and true Christian faith, and our wealth and true Christian fellowship. Let's start with the first one, our wealth and true godliness. What forms true godliness? That's the question that we want to answer. The Russian-American Orthodox priest Father Alexander Shmemen once said, tell me what you celebrate and I will tell you who you are. Well, no truer words have been spoken. And if we slightly modify what Father Shmemen said, we can say, tell me what you do with your money and I will tell you who you are. And this is equally true and equally insightful. It reflects, of course, what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that reflects your heart. That reflects your values. That reflects what is important to you. And so, people of God, I ask you, where is your treasure? What do you value? What do you perceive, uh, pursue? You see, how we use our wealth reveals who we truly are. So what does your spending or your saving or your giving say about you? What does your use of your wealth say about your priorities? What does it say about your character? And according to the apostle and according to Jesus, it says quite a bit. It reveals our heart. It reveals our priorities. It reveals who we are. And that's why in verses 6 through 10 of our passage, the Apostle Paul warns us against the dangers of money, doesn't he? Especially if you look at verses 9 through 10. There he points out that it is when we set our heart on wealth, when we have an improper attitude towards wealth. Again, it's not the wealth itself, but when we have that heart set on it, that's when we get into trouble. He says, but those who desire to be rich... Notice he doesn't say those who have money, but those who desire, is that, that's the word there, desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He warns us in verse 11 to flee from those dangers. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, he tells us. 
In fact, uh, we didn't read verse 12, but if we were to read it, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. And then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life. That, he says, is the only treasure that you ought to pursue. And that reminds us of what Jesus said in chapter 6. Turn there again of Matthew, where he said at the very end, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These are the things that we ought to be pursuing. Paul and Jesus both tell us. There is true treasure. And so when we want to understand true godliness, we have to have that proper attitude. And Paul lays it out right there for us in verse 6. Look at that again, verse 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's your true treasure. Godliness with great contentment. That's the true gain, not the money itself. And what Paul goes on to say there in verses 6 through 8 is simply this, that true godliness flows from the contentment that we have, uh, with what we have. Possessing wealth in itself is not a problem. There are some people who possess very little and still fall prey to this. There are those who possess a lot and by God's grace are content with it and do not fall to this temptation. So the trouble is not the wealth itself. The trouble comes when we're not content. And if we look, we really see that behind so many other sins in our, in our lives. So, for example, when someone gets involved in adultery, what is behind that? It's the, pers- the fact that the person is not content with the spouse that God has given them. And so therefore they turn elsewhere. There's nothing inherently evil about sex, but it's because of the lack of contentment with that spouse that the person then uses sex improperly. And that's exactly the same that we see here with wealth. It's not that the wealth itself is a problem. It's the improper use and the improper attitude. Dr. Edward Caird once wrote, it is not the fact that a person has riches that keeps them from heaven, but the fact that riches have them. It's that attitude that gets us into trouble. So then, if that's the case, what is the proper use of our wealth? And like I said, we all have it. So what should be our attitude? And Paul gives us that in verses 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There it is. That's what we want to get them a hold of, that which is truly life. Paul tells us how to use our wealth. And I want to go ahead and unpack this, but before I do, look at the very beginning of verse 17. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, and we need to answer the question, who is Paul talking about? Who are these rich in our age? Who do you think of when you hear of those who are rich and wealthy? Do you think of Hollywood celebrities? Do you think of all these sports stars? Do you think of these CEOs where they're multi-million dollar salaries or these billionaires that now seem to be springing up everywhere? If you do, of course, those people really, really are wealthy. There's no doubt about it. But let me say this. If you can go to the movies, 
If you can buy a CD, well, nobody buys CDs anymore, but if you can do something equivalent to buying a CD or subscribe to uh, Apple Music or uh, Spotify, if you can go out to eat, if you can buy Christmas presents every year, then, my friends, you are the rich of who this passage is speaking about. We may not have the level of wealth that somebody like Jeff Bezos has, but we truly are wealthy, especially compared to not just all the people alive today on this planet, but all the people throughout history. We live as kings. You know, I've said it before that even to this day, I've been living in this house for 16 years, and I'm still utterly amazed that everyone in our house, my wife, myself, our two boys, and my mom who lives with us, if we wanted to, we could all brush our teeth at the same time in separate sinks. That is amazing. If you grew up like I did in New York City with one bathroom and one sink and one toilet and with just as many people in the house, you realize how wealthy we are. You heard me talk about our air conditioning breaking, right? It broke this week, both units. And we had company arriving out of town and then the microwave broke. And you know what? I called somebody and they've come. They've ordered the parts. The fact that I can just do that and not have to go out and get a second job? We're rich, folks. We are the rich. So Paul is speaking to us. So we've seen now what true godliness comes from. It comes from contentment with being, uh, contentment with what we have, whatever level of wealth we have. But since we do have wealth, Paul is calling us to live in a certain way. That's our second point. What does Paul have to say to us, the rich? So our second point is our wealth and the true Christian faith. And there's several things that he says here in verses 17 through 19. The first one is that our wealth does not make us better than others. Our wealth does not make us better than others. He says in verse 17 that we are not to be haughty, which of course just simply means proud. Do not be proud. Some years ago, I saw an interview of... Petra Ecclestone. This was on on ABC's Good Morning America uh, 10 years ago in uh, July of 2011. Petra Ecclestone is the daughter of Bernie Ecclestone, and she is the heiress, the one who stands to gain his billions that he's gained. He's the guy who put Formula One racing on the map and made it international, got all the TV rights and everything for it. He's got a vast fortune. And at the time, 10 years ago, when Petra, his daughter, was being interviewed, she was 22 years old, and she seemed to have a very good head on her shoulders, unlike some of these others that you hear about, like the the Hiltons, and I won't mention any names, but others, you know. um, They asked her about her wealth and the fact that she has all this money, and she says, I am not spoiled. I am privileged. And I think there's a huge difference in that. And she went on to explain that she is no better than anybody, but she recognizes that she has this privilege of having been born with money. And in the 10 years since she said that, she's gone on to become her own uh, business owner and to, you know, uh, again, show that she does have a pretty good head on her shoulders. But she recognized that her wealth did not make her better than others. And we have plenty of examples of other celebrities and so on who do believe, unfortunately, that that does make them better. But Paul says, do not be haughty. The second thing that Paul says is that our wealth does not confer any lasting advantage upon us. He says not to he says not only should we not be haughty but we're not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. 
notice what I'm saying is it doesn't confer any lasting advantage. We do recognize that money does give a significant advantage in dealing with the problems of life. Like I said, I was just able to call up some repair people, one guy for the air conditioning, one guy for the microwave, and these folks, you know, I'm able to handle that. That's not something that the rest of the world can say easily. There are many, many people, even in our own country, for whom these things are a big deal. You know, some of you uh, uh, have faced things like, for example, a car accident where your car gets totaled. And it's a terrible thing. It dislocates everything for a whole week and we got to figure out what we're going to do and get another car and the insurance. It's a big hassle, but but it doesn't end. Your career doesn't end your life. For there are some people that if they lose their car, they lose their livelihood, they lose their livelihood, they lose their their house and it just all goes downhill. So there's no doubt that wealth offers a significant advantage in dealing with all the problems of life, but we have to recognize that in the end, in the end, we all end up in exactly the same place. Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and all those big names, every one of them is going to end up as a pauper. They're going to end up just like me and you. Paul says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So while it does give us an advantage in the meantime, in the end, it confers no lasting advantage. So it doesn't make sense for us to pin our ultimate hopes on our wealth. So how then, how then should we handle our wealth? Paul wants us to have a proper view of how we use it. And he continues in verse 17, telling us that the truly wealthy one, the one who has given everything is the one on whom we put our hopes. He says, let me actually read the whole of the verse. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is then the source of all the things that we have. God is the one who gives us all the things that we enjoy. Our hope then should be on him. And after he set that stage and says, this here, Not that you can't have it, not that you can't use it, but don't put your trust on it because it all comes from God. God is the one who gives it to us. God is the one on whom we rest. He then calls us to action in verse 18. He tells us that we're to emulate God, that we are to be as generous with other people as God has been generous with us. He says in verse 18, they, that is the rich, us, we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So you see how Paul's working that out. He tells us what our attitude should be towards wealth, to recognize that there's a place for it, but our hope shall ultimately be in God, and because God has been generous to us, we now are generous to others. So people of God, let me just tell you that our generosity in giving flows directly from our gratitude for God's generosity. That's an important point to understand. And let me just be clear, this is not one of those fundraising sermons that's designed to get you to give out of guilt. But it is appropriate when we read a passage like this for us to take a step back and to examine our hearts through our giving. Because while our giving is not the only indicator, it is a very important indicator that reveals something of what's important to us. As we said, Jesus pointed out, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So it does behoove us to take that step back and to see, where is my heart? What does that giving say about me? 
And let me be clear, only you can determine what that is because it's not the amount of giving that matters. There are some people who give a whole lot and their attitudes are still wrong. They may give it begrudgingly. They may give it so that others can see them as Jesus was talking about it in the beginning of chapter 6 of Matthew. There are those who give very, very little. Jesus commends the widow who gives her last two copper pennies. But that's all she had, and she gave it cheerfully. And we're reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver whose giving flows out of gratitude for the generosity that God has lavished on us in Christ. So we need to be able to look at our hearts and say, what does my giving say about my heart? What does my giving say about my gratitude? It's not the number per se. It's that attitude and that cheerfulness. What does it say? As you think about that, there's a further question we need to ask. Because we often think, okay, I'm giving my money, giving my money, let's say, to the church, giving my money to help others. Do those who receive that money really deserve it? I mean, should we be throwing good money after bad? Those people to whom we give money to in foreign lands that they might know the gospel. Those people right here to whom we give money to. Like, for example, when we started the church in Denton, then when we started the Hispanic church and all those different works, are those people worthy of receiving their money? How about those who come seeking diaconal help, those who are asking for help with clothing or with food or rent? How about those right within the job, who've, uh, within the church who've lost their jobs or who are wrestling with a serious illness and need financial help? How about the young people in our church whom we educate and we catechize with the money that you all give? Are any of these people worthy of receiving that money in our help? Now, in one sense, you're hopefully saying, yeah, because they're people made in the image of God. They're designed for dignity. And that answer would be correct. But there's another way in which we can say, actually, no, they're not worthy of that help because in the end, they're all sinners. They're all people who have rebelled against God. And the only thing that they deserve is the condemnation of God for their sin. But before we sit there and say, wow, we're so much better, let's remember that we are in that same boat. We, too, are people that deserve nothing other but condemnation from God for our sin. And when we begin to understand that, that we're just the same, then we can remember the mercy that God showed us in Jesus Christ. We can remember the compassion and the grace that God has shown us in Jesus. And how, even though we didn't deserve anything. He came and he met our need, didn't he? When Jesus Christ took on human form, and you know, when you look at a whole of our service and every aspect of it is all tied together and we're singing, you know, you who came down and took on human form, you did it for me. The mercy and the compassion that God showed to a people who didn't deserve it, to you and to me. And when Jesus comes and becomes human, helping us deal with the one problem that we're fully incapable of dealing, our sin and our broken relationship with God. Jesus doesn't just give us a portion of himself. He doesn't just give something out of the margin of his leftover, or he doesn't even just give sacrificially. He gives his all. He's willing to go to the cross, and on the cross, he dies the death that you and I deserve for our sin and our rebellion against God. He takes upon himself the penalty that you and I so richly deserve. 
that condemnation falls wholly upon him. He gives his all, not just a portion. Whereas we're just being asked to give a portion of what we have. But you see, what Paul is reminding us here in verses 17, 18, and 19 is that we are to be as generous as God has been to us. We are to use our wealth to advance God's kingdom because that's what he is doing. In calling us to himself, in caring for us, in showing us grace, he's restoring things to the way they were meant to be. He's advancing his own kingdom, and we are then to use our wealth to do the same. And when you do that, when you do that, that's when what you're spending time and money on leads to permanent treasure as opposed to the uncertainty of worldly riches. That's why he says in verse 19 that we are thus storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future because that's an investment that will never go away. That's the things that matter. We read it earlier in Jesus saying in Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you do those things, they reveal who you are. They also reveal the reality of your faith and of your salvation. Now, Let's take to mind what Jesus said at the beginning of that passage in Matthew 6. We don't need to go around, you know, trumpeting and saying, look at me as I give to the, well, as I give to the poor and to the needy. There are folks who do that, and you might be giving a whole lot. It just depends on, you know, again, the attitude. I remember a man many, many years ago when we were uh, fundraising for overseas missions back in uh, the late 90s. He was a man who had been in our church for a few years, and he was very, very wealthy. But most people, in fact, I would imagine the vast majority of the people did not know. Maybe just a few of us. He would come to us on the church staff and he would say, look, if you need to fund a position, you know, hire a missions director or a associate pastor, just let me know and I'll fund it. He was, he was able to do that kind of thing. But you never knew it. I mean, he wore a nice suit to church, and he, wore, he drove a Mercedes. That was about the only thing. But he was a man who was giving away, as we came to know, just, I don't even know how much, just a lot of money. And he was going all to missions and to church planting and all sorts of things like that. And yet nobody knew about it. The funny story is when I was raising funds, I went to him. Um, he was the first person that I uh, sat down with. And I asked him, I told him I was going to ask him for support, but I also was asking him, how do I approach wealthy people so I don't come across as patronizing or, you know, because uh, sometimes people do that. They suck up to the rich. How do I do that? And he explained, you know, just go to them and, you know, tell them what you need, and they know what you're there for and so on. So I said, thank you for the advice. And then he turned over and he, because this is back in the days when you still had to buzz something, and he buzzed his secretary, and he told her to cut a check for 50% of our fundraising in one shot. Boom, just like that. But nobody knows about it. This is the only time. Maybe I shouldn't have said it because now his reward will not do it. But God knows, and you don't know who he is, so his reward is safe. But it's that kind of attitude. We may not have that kind of money, perhaps, to, you know, to say, cut a check for $62,500. He did, but we all, again, have wealth, and we have to look at how we're spending it. And we have to see that those good works that we do with our money demonstrates the reality of our faith. It demonstrates the reality of our salvation. 
It enables us to do what Paul says here in verse 19, which is take hold of that, which is truly life. So when we talk about wealth and true Christian faith, we see that using wealth properly is the evidence of that Christian faith. Well, we can stop here. We've actually looked at the whole of the text, but I do want to add one extra element that's not so obvious, and that's our third point, our wealth and true Christian fellowship. The idea of body life, the corporate idea of us together. It's a corporate element that is actually all throughout this passage, but it's not so obvious in English translations, at least not at first. So let's take a look again at verse 18. And verse 18 is telling us that we're to assist one another, and that includes, of course, our giving. He says that we are to do good. Okay, we get that. We are to be rich in good works, right? So not just rich in our money, but rich in how we care for others and do good. We are to be generous with our money and our time and our talents and our possessions and ready to share, to let others enjoy and make use of it. The word I want to focus on is that word share, Because in the original language of Greek, that's a word that we might be familiar with from another context. It's the word koinonia. That word ring a bell? It's the word that we normally translate as fellowship. I know that some church groups, you know, they'll have a koinonia group, right? Talking about a fellowship group. The problem is that when we think of fellowship, most of the time we're thinking of simply socializing. We think of like after our church service, we'll have a fellowship time, a time of mingling and socializing. But there's so much more to that word. And the meaning in Scripture is so much richer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it so well when he says that fellowship means, koinonia means, our common life together. It's a life where we're unified with one another, where we interpenetrate, as it were, each other's lives. That's where the sharing comes from. What I have is to help you. What you have is to help me, and so on. That's what he's talking about. And if we can look at the way koinonia is being used, this common life together throughout Scripture, I think we'll get a much better feel for what Paul means by it. So turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. It's just a couple of books earlier, a few books earlier. Philippians 4, verse 14. And let's look for the use of that word koinonia in a couple of places that you may not have recognized it uh, before, because it's not being translated as fellowship. Philippians 4.14, Paul says, it was kind of you to, to share my trouble. That's the word fellowship, but it was kind of you to fellowship with me in my trouble, to be a part with me, to walk with me, to have that common life together. He continues, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. That phrase, no church, and these three words, entered into partnership, is actually one word. No church fellowshiped with me. No church koinoniaed with me. This idea of partnering, of entering into that life together. He says, nobody did it. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
He's clearly talking about money. He's clearly talking about wealth, but he's putting it in this context of partnering. That's why so often when you see somebody raising funds for missions, they don't just ask for their money, they ask you to partner because in the truest sense, we are entering into the mission with that person whom we're supporting. We are partnering with them. We are in fellowship with them. Uh, Turn back a few more pages, this time to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, and we'll see a little bit more of that. Galatians 6, verse 6. important that we see this being used throughout scripture. Paul says in verse 6, one who is taught the word must share, there it is, must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I read that entire section so you can see the context. The context is, again, doing good to others and helping others. And he's saying, look, God's not going to be mocked. He can tell where you're investing, where you're sowing. Are you sowing? Are you investing in those things of lasting value in the lives of others and in the kingdom? Or is it all for your own gain? And one is going to be corrupt. It's going to be where moth and rust destroy. And the other one will have lasting returns, he's telling us. In this case, he was talking about those who preach and teach the gospel. Those who teach the word have to share all good things. That's why it's appropriate for churches to support their pastors um, and so on. But it's this idea that you share all your good things you fellowship with. It's not just that you put a nickel in the plate to pay the pastor's salary. It's that we enter into this common life together. You are a part of this ministry and your giving enables this ministry to go forward. So see, it's not just like some store where you go and you pay for a service. You are involved. That's why it's the church and we're all involved in together. Lastly, you can look at Hebrews 13, 16. I'll, I'll just read that one. Uh, there the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that word share again is the word koinonia. What you see in all these texts is that they're about giving money and doing good to others. But they're always in the context of sacrificial service. Koinonia, the idea of fellowship is not just sitting around with coffee in hand and asking how you're doing. That's wonderful. I'm glad we do that. But it's ultimately about a a life that is shared together, a common life where we share financially, where we share sacrificially, and where we just support each other. And that is what Paul is doing, summarizing so well in verse 18 when he says we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In that little verse, he has summarized all those other passages we just read. It's a wonderful little summary. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to koinonia, to fellowship, to interpenetrate each other's lives and to live that common life together that we have in Christ. There's that corporate element that I didn't want you to miss. But we're being called to give of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our money, and to have that common life together. If you want to read more about this, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He has a a very thin little book It's absolutely wonderful. Some of you I know have used it in your home fellowship groups. It's called Life Together. And he unpacks that 
And it's a wonderful study. In our day of individualism where people just come to church and see it like a service and they can come and they go and they do whatever, this reminds us that we are being called into the body of Christ and that we're not only united with him, but Christ unites us with one another. Very important. All flowing from our common experience of mercy that God has shown us in Jesus. So that's our last point. As we use our wealth properly, we do so because it's not only evidence of true Christian faith, but it's part of being together in a community, in a community. So as we wrap this up, people of God, what do we see? We see that in our culture, the pursuit of wealth, the acquisition of wealth is meant to advance our own desires, our own agenda. But as we see here in this passage, as disciples of Jesus, our view of wealth is radically different from that of the world. It is truly a countercultural view. Very often, Christians have fallen into the trap of saying that wealth is bad. No, it's not. There is nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with enjoying wealth. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. In fact, we pray for it. But we pray for it because Scripture is teaching us to use our wealth as a tool, primarily to advance His kingdom, primarily to serve those around us. That's why we ask those things. Not so we, we can live lives of ease. And every single person here who is a member of this church has taken a membership vow, and those membership vows call us to support this church in its worship and in its work. That means we're to come and be involved in worship, but also, when we talk about supporting in its work, it means supporting it financially with, uh, with our money and as well as our time and our efforts. It's a vow to share, to koinonia, with one another. So people of God, let me just tell you, like I said, this is not one of those fundraising sermons. We do not want you to give out of guilt or out of obligation. But as we talk about cultural renewal, one of the key areas in which we have to begin to remind the culture about, one area that needs so, uh, so desperately for us to rethink, is this of wealth. We need to remember that God tells us you cannot find your satisfaction in it. It will flee from you. You will never keep it. That while you have it, it's given to us as we live our common life together so that we can, in service and in sharing, in gratitude for everything that Jesus has done, we can use it to advance his kingdom. Let us pray.